The point of a covenant is to make two people who were not family before, not one kin, into one family and one kin. That they didn't share the same flesh and blood, but after a covenant, they do. Now, it's interesting, the covenants of the Old Testament almost inseparably have animal sacrifice and sprinkling of blood. This was symbolic, especially in the covenant of Moses, where there's a sprinkling of blood on the altar and on the people. It was to symbolize that God is making a covenant with the people of Israel to bring them into one family with one another, to share the same flesh and blood. But the problem is the old covenants, they fell short. They did not have the ability to bestow the same flesh and blood on God and his people. The people couldn't have God's flesh and blood because God didn't have flesh and blood. And the people couldn't even share in the same nature. Human nature and divine nature are infinitely apart. So how could a covenant possibly accomplish what it sets out to do? All it could do was symbolize bringing two groups into one family, into one covenant, the people of Israel and God. Now, in John 6, it's interesting that Jesus is teaching about the Eucharist in the form of manna. The manna is a great miracle by Moses. Jesus, being the new Moses, conveys the two great miracles of Moses in the desert. It's the manna from heaven and water from the rock. And both of these are symbolized by the two sacraments, the manna from heaven in the Eucharist and the water from the rock in baptism. So Jesus, being the new Moses, is bringing the people into a new covenant. So he brings up the manna on purpose. Now, for the first century Jew, if the first century Jew believed that the old manna was supernatural bread from heaven that could then bestow life, that could come from heaven and provide nourishment, then could the new manna be just a symbol? In other words, if the old manna was the food of angels, could the new manna be just ordinary bread and wine? Wouldn't that make the old manna greater than the new manna? Now, we know in the scriptures, all the previous prefigurations, all the types in the Old Testament are blown out of the water by their fulfillment in the new. What's greater? Is it the old Adam or is it Christ, the new Adam? Who's greater? Is it the old Eve, Mary? Excuse me, the old Eve, Eve, who sinned at the fall, or is it the new Eve, who's Mary, who was sinless from the very moment of her conception through her assumption into heaven? And of course, the answer is it's the new Mary, the new Eve. She's the perfect fulfillment. And so it's the same with the manna. We ask ourselves this question. If the old manna was so glorious and bestowed from heaven to give life to the Israelite people, then certainly the new manna would have to be far greater. It couldn't just be bread and wine. What we celebrate in the Eucharist has to be greater than mere bread and wine. It's interesting when we see the responses of the people, our gospel today begins with the Jews murmuring about Jesus. And we continue to see relations break down between Jesus and the crowd next week and the week after also. First, Jesus taught that he is the bread that came down from heaven, which causes the Jews to murmur. They say, we know his father and his mother. We know who this is. How could he be from heaven? 
And this is the same word used in Egypt all the way back in Exodus as the people are journeying through out of Egypt towards the promised land. They're wandering in the desert and it uses the same word. They murmured against Moses and against God because they had no food. That's what gets the manna in the first place the first place. This manna come down from heaven was in response to the murmuring. But then after this statement, the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. The last statement in our gospel today, can you guess what the response is after this? The very beginning of the gospel next week will say the Jews then began to dispute. So it's no longer murmuring, it's now disputation. Then Jesus begins to teach, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life within you. And my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And at this point, his disciples begin to murmur. And then finally, after he speaks more, his disciples leave altogether save the twelve. So we have this complete breakdown of relations. We have first the Jews murmuring, then the Jews dispute, then we have his disciples murmuring, and then his disciples just leave, except for the twelve. Now, if you're a preacher and you're trying to spread the gospel, if you're worth your salt, if you are speaking metaphorically, don't you think at that moment you say, guys, I'm just kidding, this is This is not true. I'm not literally saying eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's only a metaphor. It's a symbol. Come back. I'll talk more about the Sermon on the Mount material. You won't have to deal with this bread of life stuff. Don't worry. Uh, Come back. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he emphasizes even more that this is truly his flesh and truly his blood and that we must eat and drink his flesh and blood. What more positive demonstration of the truth of the Eucharist do we need than that? But it's even more interesting than this, getting back to the idea of a covenant. Jesus tips us off to what he's doing in this discourse with almost a throwaway statement. He makes a reference to Old Testament prophets, and we have to be very careful not to pass over these references without understanding their context. This is what he says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him, and I will raise him on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Now, what does this possibly mean? First, it means that Jesus acknowledges he's divine wisdom itself. He is God incarnate teaching the people. He is the fulfillment of this passage that they shall all be taught by God. They are the privileged few to be taught physically by God himself in front of them. But it means something much deeper also. The context of this passage is absolutely incredible. This passage in Isaiah 54 and 55 talks about an everlasting covenant where God shows compassion on his people, binds them to himself, and teaches the people with intimate knowledge of himself. This is the words of Isaiah 54 and 55. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. With everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Though mountains depart and the hills be removed, my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. 
Now, it's a beautiful line, your maker will be your husband. It's pretty powerful language. Which brings us finally to the question of today, which is, why the Eucharist? Of all the things God could do to institute for our salvation, why does God choose to give us the Eucharist as the means to unite us with him? It seems pretty difficult to understand the Eucharist being the body, blood, soul, and divinity. Why is he taking this approach? Why the Eucharist? How does this lead us to salvation? Remember, there was a, a great question I was teaching in seminary to a bunch of students in seventh grade. Have I told you about seventh graders? So seventh graders ask the best questions. And I think this is why. They have just about the intelligence needed to understand almost all of reality, but none of the maturity to deal with it. So seventh graders, they ask the best questions. And what's great is they're bold. They're not afraid to ask the really good questions, even if they sound a little bit odd. So one seventh grader asked me a question. He said, well, Father, if we eat the flesh and blood and drink the blood of Jesus, doesn't that make us cannibals? And I thought for a moment, I said, okay, seven years of formation. Yeah, I know, I know it's not cannibalism. I don't know how to answer this question. So I had to tell him I did the best that I could and kind of dove and got out the, the conversation a little bit and said, I'll have to come back to you with the answer. I really don't know. But this passage from Isaiah, along with some other sources from Augustine, for example, really gives insight to that question. The moment I thought of the seminary professor who said, well, we also receive his soul and divinity, so we're not really man-eaters, we're more like God-eaters. I'm thinking, that doesn't sound any better. That actually sounds worse. I'm not going to tell that to this kid. So in finding the solution to this, this passage from Isaiah gives us the insight. Having, consuming the Eucharist isn't much like eating. In eating, what we eat is completely destroyed, and it becomes a part of us. But receiving the Eucharist is much more like holy matrimony, where the two remain distinct, and yet they're made one flesh. Neither is destroyed. Both are fully intact and fully themselves, but become brought, to better, brought together in this unity. So the Eucharist is much more like marriage than it is eating. And the prophecy in Isaiah here, it's your maker shall be called your husband through an everlasting covenant. And this is mind-blowing when you think about it. All the old covenants of the Old Testament, they fail to bring about what a covenant does, which is to make two people or two groups of people one family, one kin, to share the same flesh and blood, to share the same nature. It wasn't possible. It was never brought about in the Old Testament because the covenants couldn't actually give us God's flesh and blood. We didn't have, he didn't have flesh and blood. The amazing thing about the Eucharist is God, through the incarnation, assumed our flesh and blood. But that's only half of the equation. The other half is when we receive the Eucharist, we receive his flesh and blood. We become one flesh and blood with Christ, not only through the incarnation, 
but also by receiving him in the Eucharist, it brings it to perfection and fruition. This is why Jesus says that he's the manna from heaven. He doesn't say he's the true bread from heaven, and that means that he's actually God from heaven. It's the reverse. Because he descended from heaven by virtue of the incarnation and assumes our human nature and our flesh and blood, that's why he's called the bread from heaven. That's why he's the new manna, because it literally took place in the incarnation. So all of the old covenants that failed to bring about this unity and kinship with the Lord himself, it's actually accomplished in the Eucharist. This everlasting covenant hinted at by Isaiah, where your maker will become your husband, it's accomplished here at this altar, and then when we receive him in the Eucharist. And it's not only that, here's the amazing thing, Not only does this covenant work and we become his flesh and blood because he took our flesh and blood in the incarnation and gave us his flesh and blood to eat and nourish us in the Eucharist, but he even gives us his divine nature. How is that possible with him being God and us being so far from divine nature? Because we know that when we receive the Eucharist, it's not just the body and blood, but soul and divinity. So he makes us not only one family in flesh and blood, but bestows his divine nature upon us. That's incredible. He accomplishes every possible thing a covenant aims at in a way that is unfathomable. No man could ever conceive that God would take our flesh and blood, give it to us as nourishment, and in doing so, give us divine nature also. In him, everything is truly, perfectly accomplished. So we give God great praise for this incredible gift, this incredible sacrament, where we enter an everlasting covenant, a marriage covenant, between God and the body of Christ, the church. We, the bride, receive him and become one with him in unity through the bond of his own love and divinity. And we give him thanks and praise for revealing this truth to us so that we can actually receive not just the Eucharist, but the understanding that he truly comes to us in this intimate, close way. And lastly, we give God great thanks for the grace poured out into us to actually believe, hold true, and have faith that his words of the covenant are actually brought about here at this altar. And with faith, we approach him and eagerly anticipate the perfection of this marriage covenant as we celebrate the most holy Eucharist.